Hi, welcome to our new podcast coming to you live from the Institute of World Politics here in Washington, D.C. I'm Jim Robbins, Dean of Academics at IWP. IWP is an accredited graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs, offering a variety of certificates, master's degrees, and doctorates, both in person and online. You can check out our programs and courses at iwp.edu. Today we're joined by Dr. Chris Harmon, a longtime friend and colleague, a longtime professor here at uh, the Institute, an expert on terrorism and counterterrorism, a longtime government service at the Asia Pacific Center, the Marshall Center, uh, Naval War College, Marine Corps University, where we met when we taught together. And uh, that's the topic for today is the Houthis and terrorism in general, and how do you define it? Welcome, Chris, to the show. Well, thank you. I wanted to start just talking a little bit about uh, what's going on in the Middle East and the uh, terror designation for the Houthis, because it seems like the Biden administration has a hard time uh, recognizing when they're faced with terrorists. First, the they remove the terrorist designation from the Houthis. Uh, then, after extensive attacks on uh, high sea shipping, you know, international piracy, they put it back on, but not fully. And uh, so far as the U.S. government is concerned, there are several ways to designate a terrorist group. Uh, they can be an uh, an FTO, a recognized uh, foreign terrorist organization, or a specially designated global terrorist group, which is a designation that the Biden administration has settled on for the Houthis, um, the former of which is designated by Secretary of State, and the SDGT is something under Executive Order 13224 and enforced by the Treasury Department. And it's important to note the difference. I mean, it's better to have both designations on a group. And the FTO is a much stronger designation. So right away, the Biden administration is uh, giving a, a lesser designation of terrorism to this group. And uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, assured us that there were, as he said, unprecedented carve-outs and licenses even within this designation allowing the Houthis to uh, import, export petroleum and refined petroleum products and operate ports and airports. So you have to wonder, you know, what, where's the teeth in this designation? Why are they doing it? And of course, these are kind of legal and policy and strategy things. But I mean, Chris, do you think that, this, that the deterrence is there that really is like, has the teeth in it to actually accomplish anything? It comes across to me as a very qualified uh, disapproval, which isn't enough when you're dealing with uh, regular patterns of attacks on our ships. So I think you're right to be uh, concerned. I think that the Houthis are engaged in what we can call piracy or what we can call terrorism. Uh, it needn't be one or the other. I think in this case, we're seeing both. And they're, they're both against all international law. Yeah, I think that when you're dealing with a highly motivated group like this, that kind of half measures are not really going to have the deterrence effect that you want to have. Um, and of course, the Houthi problem has been a longstanding one, and it will continue to be. Um, 
But part of it, part of it is just the problem of defining what terrorism is and then how we can approach that. And I know that you have thought a great deal about this uh, over your entire career. I know we've both been involved uh, very much in counterterrorism, working for the government. And uh, I just wanted to discuss that today, like how can we recognize when we're dealing with terrorists? It, it's a good issue, not just because of the Houthis, but because of the, the, the terrible confusion on our campuses uh, since the October invasion of armed bands in, into Israel. Um, I do think uh, terrorism is, should be recognized as a very uh, definable animal. It, it's a perverse form of politics, and I, I, I do believe it's definable. And I think our academic community could do a lot more to clarify that. They, they tend to leave it unclear. Um, uh, the best definition I've ever heard, and it's one I've used in my own books, uh, goes back to 1979 in a think tank called the Jonathan Institute. And that's that uh, terrorism is the deliberate and systematic murder, maiming, and menacing of the innocent to inspire fear for political ends. And if we think about that, it, it takes care of the of the gunmen from Hamas that we're concerned about at the moment. Uh, the definition embraces, let's say, Dylan Roof making a horrific attack in a black church in South Carolina, or more broadly, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, which if you look at it, it's a 1910 was a, a great international organization in its breadth and, and was designed to terrorize for particular reasons. The, the same definition would nicely embrace, let's say, Korean agents in Kuala Lumpur murdering a dissident from their regime uh, or one of the Russian targets. Uh, they get hit abroad by state clandestine agents. And it certainly embraces big attacks by sub-state groups like, say, Al-Qaeda, um, which, which not only attacked the United Nations in Baghdad back in 03, but did it again, the same hotel, uh, a month later. Um, so the definition like the Jonathan Institute off offers us is a good example of one that embraces uh, most of the kinds of things we all recognize as terrorism. That's fantastic. And you include state-sponsored and um, state terrorism under the same definition. I think we can. Um, it's true some academics don't, but I always have. And it uh, seems to me to be reasonable because uh, sometimes it's a sub-state actor. But quite frequently in modern times, we've seen states act. There's kind of a new trend uh, in some discussions here in Washington about transnational repression, which is where a state reaches out like China or Russia might to intimidate a political opponent, but, but to do somebody when they're abroad. Um, and so state actions, I think, should be wrapped into the discussions of terrorism. Indeed, uh, particularly these days when we're talking about Iran and the Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, and other groups that they support. Uh, it's very hard to distinguish between uh, the terrorists, the IRGC, and the regime itself. So there are many definitions of terrorism. And a frustration of mine, I know we'll probably talk about this later in the conversation, but was the number of different definitions just in the US government. 
so if you're dealing with the DOD definition, the State Department definition, the FBI definition, the intelligence community definition, they all differ. And then we have the international dimension. We have the United Nations definition, uh, which... Of course, the U.S. isn't bound to necessarily, but it's supposed to form a standard for the world to respond to. But how do you feel about that? Right. The the U.N. definition, I think, is important to get to because it, there is one. That alone surprises most uh, people, even in, in, the, in the field of terrorism studies. Um, I routinely hear that there is no definition the UN has agreed upon. Well, they have had plenty of conferences, which didn't end in unanimity. But there's an excellent definition, and it's been in force since 2002 on their treaty against terrorist financing. Um, so most states in the world have signed up to this thing. Um, and the UN uh, definition includes elements that are a lot like the one I just mentioned. Um, they say that it's an act intended to cause death or serious bodily injury to a civilian or to another person not taking part in, in hostilities in a situation of armed conflict. Uh, and the context for this uh, is when uh, sort of by the nature or context of, of the situation, they're trying to intimidate a population or compel a government uh, or an international organization like the UN to, to do something or not do something. Um, the UN didn't used to have a posture on terrorism, but they have now. And uh, certain resolutions like 1373 uh, actually define terrorism as a threat to international peace and security, which is their trigger language for allowing enforcement provisions to be taken. Um, you can act in the UN under Chapter 7 with armed force against a terrorist threat. Now, when, when you and I began studying in this field, that was not at all the expectation and there was no, no basis for that. But the UN's posture has changed and they've come out against the, the, uh, the matter. And I think we should take advantage of whatever the UN can do to help us in this respect. Yes, and back in the back in the day, uh, the Soviet Union resisted any kind of definition of terrorism at the UN because they sponsored so much of it that they didn't want to have people uh, authorized to go and stop them. They did. Eventually, the Yeltsin government published some critical documents that admitted to what they'd been doing. Uh, I also have an astonishing document uh, translated from German uh, from the intelligence services that explain all the Palestinians' travels in and out of the Eastern Bloc, for example. So that used to be debated. It's not anymore. The Soviets were very pervasive responsors of, of sub-state terrorism in foreign countries like West Germany. Yes. Uh, and going back, uh, the book Hydra of Carnage, I just want to you know, shout out to the Fletcher School uh, my alma mater for uh, coming out with that book that in the 80s documented so much of what was going on with international support of terrorism from the Soviet Union, reaching even to the IRA, reaching into training grounds in Libya to uh, different third world countries that had, you know, you wouldn't think that they were tied into communism, but it was just the common coin of violence that was uh, bringing them all together. 
That's right. And and that was a fine book. Uh, a, a colleague we know, Richard Schultz, was involved with that. Uh, and its its great advantage was that it used documents like the one I just mentioned, although that isn't in that volume, uh, that, that prove uh, the sponsorship and prove the interest in sponsorship on the part of states like Libya or the USSR or Syria. Yes. And now we have uh, Iran taking over that mantle and promoting terrorism globally. So getting back to the definition aspect, and I just mentioned that there are different definitions in, uh, in the U.S. government. Is there any particular one that we use uh, from a government point of view that you like? There are a couple, and the dominant one, according to our colleague Aaron Danis, who's been on the inside of this business for a long time, is, is really state departments. Uh, and, and state is the, is the section of the government that every year publishes a review of one year's terrorism events and counterterrorism work. And that, that's called Country Reports on Terrorism. It's a great source. And so they call terrorism this premeditated, politically motivated violence against non-combatant targets by subnational groups or clandestine agents. And I think that's a very workable, very reasonable definition. There are, there are some minor differences with others. For example, the FBI will consider attack on property um, uh, to be a terrorist action, whereas that's not at all clear from a State Department perspective. FBI will consider threats as well. State's definition doesn't get into that. But the interesting thing is that um, in many years of public service, I just haven't found the government uh, individual in CT who's really worried that these uh, differences between departments are really that significant. They don't seem to be holding us back. And some, sometimes people tell me they give the, our government more options. That's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, I've always thought that it would cause a problem at the at the legal level, at the you know law enforcement level, if we're bringing them back here for trial, what what are they exactly charged with? If our policy is uh, inconsistent, uh, yes, and there's differences in, in views on that, and there's differences between what states and the federal government have on in in law. So it isn't always um, it isn't always easy. But uh, one thing is that many, um, many states, because terrorism is international, many states can try. So they, there might be a number of friendly states that have jurisdiction in a given international case. And that's true with piracy, too. Going back to our dear Houthi friends, uh, piracy is an international crime in any state, anywhere, can prosecute pirates, no matter where that action occurred, as far as I understand it. Oh, yeah. Also take direct action. I mean, with the Houthi situation where the UN authorized something, but uh, came short of authorizing the use of force in its uh, recent resolution. And then China complained that the Western powers that were taking action against the Houthis, that this was not authorized by the UN. But it doesn't have to be in the case of piracy. 
Is that right? I think I think that's right. Um, um, any number of uh, any number of states can can act, and we 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 now, as we study the piracy problem, it would be well reminded to look at how we took care of it off Somalia some years ago with a big international force of contrib- contributions from all all number of states, and it really was successful. And that's, in fact, how piracy was dealt with over time. As you know, as a Thucydides expert, you send the Navy and you destroy the pirates in their bases, and it has a tremendous impact. So we're not doing something radically different, nor should we. Yeah, ample precedent for that. And I would point out that even though the U.S. and Britain are are, uh, doing the most direct application of force with the Houthis, there is a coalition of, I guess, more than 20 different countries that have signed on to this. Now, when we're trying to define terrorism, I know that many terrorists don't like to be called terrorists or they use some euphemism. They're freedom fighters, they're, you know, national heroes, whatever they are. Um, But some terrorists will just admit it. They'll just flat out admit it, which makes makes the job of defining them a little bit easier. (laughs) It it does. uh, I was listening to a lecture one day by uh, the person in the country who's probably the, the best known uh, terrorism analyst. And he just in passing said what he thought was an easiest thing in the world to say, which is that that, that while these definitions are difficult, of course, one thing is, is really obvious, which is that nobody would allow themselves to be called a terrorist. It's clearly a, a value judgment uh, based on disparagement. Uh, and that's flat wrong. It's flat wrong. The first case I know of where we use the word terror in a modern sense uh, comes from the French Revolution. And a lawyer named Robespierre, who thought about his speech very carefully, told the assembly in 1794 that if we're going to defend our new revolutionary government, we need two things, virtue and terror. Uh, We shouldn't be in charge if we're not virtuous. But to keep in charge, we have to have the element of terror, and we're going to use that. And that's what the guillotine and lots of other things were. And then as you begin looking in modern times, you see, for example, Carlos Maragela, a famous Brazilian communist who did a book that was popular in the 70s in safe houses called A Mini Manual of Urban Guerrilla Warfare. And he openly explains what terrorism is like, why it works. It's a kind of psychological and political weapon. And he says that terrorism is simply a a weapon that the revolutionary must never give up. So um, some people are kind of worried if if we tribute too much about this uh, to business of of a current religious problem. In fact, long before the Salafists um, were on the stage from 79 onward, uh, a lot of the uh, spokesmen then fully understood that that what terrorism was and some were willing to to speak to it and, and use the term for themselves. And the, the Salafists have done this in a big way. Um, I worked through all 1,600 pages of an amazing book called The Call to Global Islamic Resistance. And uh, it is widely used in the, in the Salafist community to, as, a, as a, a way to explain and understand and exhort violence. And the author, uh, Abu Musab al-Suri, 
has a bunch of things he wants the community of militants to do, education, religious development, open political advocacy, guerrilla war. But he comes down very hard on what he calls individual jihad terrorism as a very crucial element in this package. He exhorts terrorism and uh, explains why it's needed. It's an overt sort of thing. And by the way, that uh, those, those words were routinely excerpted by Al-Qaeda when they started their electronic magazine, Inspire. They took whole pages out of Al-Suri. And uh, so Al-Qaeda is another example of where they said, yeah, we know what terrorism is. This is how it works. And this is why we're doing it. Oh, yeah. Inspire was great reading. Uh, you know, all kinds of great stuff in there with instructions on how to do attacks. Uh, and uh, there are various ideological statements and responses to current events. I mean, it was like Newsweek for Al-Qaeda. It was, uh, that magazine was great. I don't know if they've published it recently, but I used to be an avid consumer of Inspire. <laughs> the, uh, they don't republish it. They kind of quit after about 17 issues. But every once in a, maybe a year or so, there'll, there'll be a, a short version of it, which appears. There have been very few since 17 or so, but uh, they're, they're, occasionally they come back with a, with a short edition. Of course, then they were followed by ISIS with Dabiq and Ramon. Maya, which were less witty and kind of interesting and a little more uh, harsh, um, especially in their attacks on Shia. This concludes part one of our conversation on defining terrorism with Dr. Jim Robbins and Dr. Christopher Harmon. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our podcast to catch the second part to be released later this week. Enjoying the podcast? Please share with your friends and leave us a rating. From the Institute of World Politics, this has been the IWP Podcast.